everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> okay, so today, Dave, we're going to chat about um, something which is often the, the starting point for digestive dysfunction and for a lot of people they may not even realize this comes at the very top and then they experience this issue and then it can lead to uh it can lead to to like small intestinal issues it can even lead to SIBO it can lead to um bowel movement issues constipation diarrhea and a lot of the time until we address this top part of the cascade nothing really gets better and so this thing which is often overlooked it's stomach acid so that's what we're going to chat about today it's something i'm seeing more and more and more people experiencing symptoms of low stomach acid especially now with what's going on just globally there's a whole lot of stress like global stress is high and so people seem to have more of these symptoms going on so i think this is a, a pretty relevant and topical conversation for today so as a starting point dave stomach acid where do we even begin yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a saying that when you've got gastrointestinal issues, a lot of the time to, to find the source of the issue is go upstream. Yeah. It's a bit of the saying. That's obviously what you're talking about there. And I think like it's really important for people to understand is like what's, what's, the, what's the building blocks? What's like the soup that I need for good stomach acid? Yeah. And also there's just a lot of, I reckon there's a lot of misconceptions around stomach acid as well. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. Um, and we talk about this all the time, but when we're talking about like hydrochloric acid, gastric acid, stomach acid, one of the major functions of hydrochloric acid is actually antimicrobial within yep. the stomach lining. And we're probably going to touch on this a little bit more when you actually go down the realms where what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to um, lower the amount of stomach acid or hydrochloric acid that you're producing. And the problem there is you're, if you're lowering it and it's like antimicrobial, that can lead you to, to actually have a high proliferation of certain types of bacteria within the stomach lining. But there's like, obviously, if you look at some of the roles of like stomach acid, it's obviously to take protein. So it's obviously helping with like protein synthesis and it's actually taking larger chains of amino acids and then essentially breaking them down into smaller chains of amino acids. And so hydrochloric acid is, is obviously produced within a particular type of epithelium. It's called the paratel cells. And they're within the gastric pits within the stomach lining. And there's all these different types of epithelium and they play a key role in, in these functions as well. And so the, the hydrochloric acid allows you to produce an enzyme and that's called pepsinogen. And then the pepsinogen is actually converted into pepsin. And essentially that allows you to take polypeptides, which for people who don't know, is basically chains of amino acids from 50 to 100 plus in layman's terms and taking them and then breaking them down into peptides, which is basically chains of amino acids from anywhere from two to 50. And then that's obviously going to go down in the small intestine and then we break them down into singular amino acids. Okay, So this is really essential, but it's obviously helping us to take B12, uh, which is cabellamin, and separate that from the protein as well. And also... Um, actually helps us to even separate lipids from proteins as well. So there's a, there's a lot of like key functions going on here. And the soup that we need, we actually need things like zinc is really important for hydrochloric acid. We actually need B1, which is thiamine. We actually need vitamin E, 
There's, and there's like eight different types of vitamin E. And a lot of the time we consume one that's more like uh, alpha tocopherol, but you even need things like gamma tocopherol. So this is really important as well, but you also need bicarbonate. And we need to understand that bicarbonate basically comes from carbon dioxide. So 90% of the carbon dioxide within the body is actually in the form of bicarbonate. And that's really dependent on your energy systems. And that's why actually producing hydrochloric acid is actually one of the most metabolically demanding yeah. processes in the human body. It's really important for people to understand that. Mm. And so you've got poor energy systems, you're a shallow breather, you're not getting enough oxygen. Ultimately, you're not getting enough carbon dioxide. That's really going to affect things like bicarbonate. And it's going to ultimately affect things like stomach acid. And then you need chloride. So there's like these, these five key ingredients that we actually need for that, for that mm. soup. And a lot of the time you could, you could go through that and, and many people might have issues with some of these key compounds. Is and, iron part of that mix as well or, or not so much? Um, look, I, look I, like once again, there's, there's, there's other factors as well. But if I had to really like say, what are the five key compounds in this instance? They would be the, the five key compounds yeah. that I would be talking about. And, and, and one thing that we can't overlook here as well, and I've also already mentioned it, is just the actual structure of the, of the epithelium. We always talk about the structure. And so you've got all these different types of epithelium. You've got the paratel cells. And so they're really important because obviously they produce hydrochloric acid, gastric acid, but they also produce intrinsic factor which is a glycoprotein, it's a transporter molecule, and it basically helps to bind to B12 and it transports the B12 down to the small intestine and basically detaches from it. So you can uptake the B12 more efficiently in the epithelium within the small intestine. But then you've got all these, these, these other cells as well. You've got goblet cells, you've got things like uh, D cells, you've got G cells, which is to do with gastrin. Uh, you've got chief cells, okay, that's to do with pepsinogen and the D cells. That's to do with somatostatin, which actually helps to sort of regulate the acidity within the gut. And this is, this, you, you would say that's part of the soup as well. Does that mm. make sense? So mm. with that, we've got to say that the epithelium, which once again, what are we talking about here? Is we're talking about connective tissue. We're talking about type one collagen. Okay. So it's all well and good for us to say, well, we, we need these micronutrients and these compounds, but if I don't have good structure within the gut lining, that's really going to affect hydrochloric acid and gastric acid and intrinsic factor. Um, and so we really, you know, we really got to look after that because I guess what people don't understand is there's a lot of things that damage. So just like we can damage, obviously, the small intestine, the colon, the large intestine, we damage the stomach lining. And, and I, would, I would say that gets bombarded, almost like gets bombarded first. Okay. So before we talk about damage, so basically the key event or the, the main event in the stomach is this whole HCL, uh, like pepsin, pepsinogen, intrinsic factor. So all this stuff, which is helping break down protein and the nutrients associated with protein. Yeah. So that's kind of like the, the key factor here. Well, it's, it's such a big soup because you can, I, can, I can go even further here and you'd say there's like even like sort of stimulators that yeah. actually help with it as well, like acetylcholine. It's a stimulator because you've got like essentially like uh, receptors for these three major compounds. Once again, like gastrin, which is you sort of like you'll classify as a, as a gut hormone, basically. And then a big one is histamine. And histamine, we might touch on a little bit more, but when you produce histamine, this is one of the big benefits with histamine because it actually helps with gastric juices because the histamine yeah. plays on the H2 receptors on the paratel cells within the stomach lining. And that actually helps with the release of hydrochloric acid, but also intrinsic factor. So, so before we talk about what could go wrong, 
or, or why it's going wrong. Let's talk about what happens if it does go wrong. So in this case, if there's low stomach acid, there's low intrinsic factor, this the stuff just isn't being produced enough. What negative impact is, is that going to have? I know you've mentioned um, like sterilizing bacteria. So that's going to be one thing. It's kind of like your first port of defense when you get exposed to bacteria orally. So that's one. You've mentioned transportation of, of B12. So we're going to have potentially like a B12 deficiency. Um, you know, obviously there's going to be the other nutrients that are associated with protein. So that tends to be things like iron, zinc, um, you know. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a vicious cycle there. Like just, sorry to interrupt, mate. Okay, yep. but you get like the, the hydrochloric acid and zinc cycle. It's a vicious yep. cycle. And what I mean by this is like, you need zinc for hydrochloric acid and then you need hydrochloric acid for zinc. Yeah. So that's just a vicious loop. Totally. And a lot of people get yep. stuck in that loop. Do you know what I mean? Because yep. we say, oh, we'll just throw more zinc at it. But what happens if I've got the issues of the hydrochloric acid that's affecting my ability to uptake the zinc more efficiently. And so then what happens, so we've got these deficiencies which are starting to occur. And I mentioned right at the start that this can kind of be like the, the top of the, the digestive dysfunction tree and then it starts to cause things downstream. How does it cause downstream issues? What's happening if we've got these stomach acid issues and these absorption issues and digestive issues in, from a stomach level? How is it then causing issues in our small intestine? Because the, 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 way, the, the way to look at it is like, obviously like what's happening is you, and I'll, I'll just give it like an example here, because obviously you're going to struggle with protein maldigestion, protein malabsorption. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And, 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 and science could come out in things like your blood markers, like maybe low total protein. So issues with things like albumin and globulin. And um, so we, we, you know, we can start to see some of these indications within the blood markers. Yep. Um, and if you're not breaking down the protein properly, because it's only sort of partially broken down, then it gets to the small intestine. It's sort of like the small intestine goes, what the hell's going on here? Mm. Okay, do you know what I mean? Like it's got to work a lot harder. And yep. even with something like animal proteins and so forth, then you can get it even like a, a process called like putrefaction. And the putrefaction is where it's just sitting there and rotting because it's, it's just not getting broken down properly and just puts a lot more pressure on the epithelium, where obviously 90% of your absorption and your digestion is actually taking place. But you end up putting a lot more pressure because it's got to, it's got to work hard, even harder to yeah. try and break down these molecules. And so you're putting more pressure on the enzymes like carboxypeptidase, aminopeptidase, dipeptidase, and more pressure on the enterocytes and the epithelium to try and break that down. So it can sit there, it can sort of rot, and then it can uh, even start to create some, some microbiome sort of uh, ratio complications so it's actually going to start to impact the microbiome because of this fermentation putrefaction which is occurring yeah and so sure. some bacteria is actually going to feed off that yeah because you, you you start to just have high rates of fermentation taking place within the small intestine i'm not just apl applying this solely to the animal proteins because this applies to other foods as well so they're just sort of it's just sitting there and fermenting and then obviously bacteria which obviously helps with that fermentation process, even with like the proteins and so forth. Um, and then the problem there is they're helping with the protein fermentation and they can start to produce high amounts of particular gases and that can cause, you know, a lot of discomfort. There can be symptoms associated with that. And essentially you have higher rates of fermentation taking place within an area of the gastrointestinal tract where a lot of that fermentation shouldn't necessarily be taking place. Yeah. So effectively, this could start to potentially lead to something like SIBO. Yeah. So it's like, it's really important to understand is that one particular issue would start to 
create another issue within yep. a, another area within the gastrointestinal tract. Yep. And then actually when you create that issue, once again, it's always a vicious loop. So if we create something like SIBO and then one of the byproducts from SIBO is histamine. So yeah. there's more histamine. And then because there's high amounts of histamine, it means obviously that the histamine plays on the H2 receptors on the paratel cells within the gastric pits. Okay. But then over time, you, it can lead to something like histamine intolerance. Yeah, okay. And basically means that the histamine doesn't bind with the H2 receptors, which means that you actually release lower levels of things like hydrochloric acid and intrinsic factor. So now you have major issues with like B12. You're, you're losing the, those protective mechanisms of the hydrochloric acid from an antimicrobial perspective. And now you're prone to bacterial overgrowth within the stomach lining. So something like H. pylori or helicobacter overgrowth within the stomach lining. So it's, it just becomes a vicious loop where one yeah. issue creates one issue, okay, and then that issue creates another issue, and then we get stuck in these loops. So we don't need to go into a lot of detail here, but you did touch on a couple of blood markers. So if someone had low stomach acid, what are the common things we'll start to see in blood, in blood work? Well, I think a good place to start is look at the soup. So just look at a lot of the things that I talked about. Well, okay, look at like serum zinc. So look at uh, red cell zinc, because it's obviously one of the key ingredients that we need. And so this would be, have the tendency to be more low end. Well, let's look at um, chloride, because once again, that's the most negatively charged ion in the body. And that would be lower end as well. And even like CO2 bicarbonate, because obviously it's a reflection of bicarbonate within the body. It's also a good reflection of the, the carbon dioxide as well, because once again, 90% of the carbon dioxide in the bodies in the form of bicarbonate. So you start to like combine these. So obviously the chloride low end, the, the CO2 bicarbonate low end, and this is definitely going to be a good sign that there is uh, low stomach acid. And especially if you're seeing a common trend for that person where those things do have the tendency to be more low end. Yeah. And so then in addition to that, you would see B12 low, you'd B12, see MCV yeah, yeah. elevated, You'd yeah. see ferritin potentially low or serum iron low. And you mentioned what kind like of total, total, total protein. Okay. Yeah. Just, well, are again, you going to see a change then albumin and globulin, or would you just say both will be low? Look, look, I'd say that like, if it, like with that issue, you would just see them both sort of sitting lower end. Yeah. Okay. Because obviously total protein, we, we speak about this marker all the time. And they say it's a reflection of nutritional status and immune status again, but this is the combined total of the albumin and the globulin. And the yeah. albumin and the globulin is really what you want to be looking at. And you would probably see that they, um, you know, without going into too much depth with those two particular markers, but you would have the tendency to see both those things sitting a little bit more low end in that instance. Because once again, you're just struggling with like protein synthesis and yeah. protein maldigestion, protein malabsorption. Yeah. What about urea? What do you think would be happening there? Because I've there seems to be a bit of debate over urea. Is it going to be high? Is it going to be low? Is it not going to be impacted? What's your feeling there? It's just like, just from my perspective, it's just not a particular marker. Like I might use it as a malnourishment marker, but I'm not necessarily going to look at, uh, look at it as a, like a key, like stomach acid or hydrochloric acid yeah. uh, indicator. That's just from my perspective. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd use it as a, as a, a correlation marker for other um, trends and, and other complications, but it's just not, you know, sometimes, yes, it could be a, a sign of, you know, potentially like not enough protein in the diet and potentially, okay, but it's just not one of the key ones sure. that I would, would essentially use for hydrochloric acid and stomach acid directly. Yeah. Okay. So as much as I want to keep talking about blood work, I guess we should get back on 
and other things. So what can happen that will cause someone to have low stomach acid? You've touched on a couple of things. You talked about it being very metabolically expensive for the body to make stomach acid. Um, and so that's maybe one that people might overlook. Like how often would you see this with people who are dieting all the time, maybe physique competitors or bodybuilders? Do you see that in, in that kind of population a lot? Yeah, so one big factor which I was starting to get into was, you know, just if you have damaged the, the different types of epithelium. And there's, there's, there's a whole array of uh, things that might actually cause that damage. So, you know, bacterial issues could cause that damage as well. But once again, like, why did you get the bacterial overgrowth yeah. in the first place? So H. pylori can definitely cause some issues there. And, and for people who don't know, that's a negative gram bacterial overgrowth within the stomach lining. And it doesn't mean it's the devil. We've sort of spoken about this in the past, but obviously when you've got an overgrowth, it can definitely uh, create some complications and it, it actually affects the acidifying effects of hydrochloric acid yeah. within the within the stomach lining. But I, I like medications is, is can be a real problem here, uh, especially things like, you know, protein pump inhibitors, antihistamines, get a combination of those two together, which 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 can be really common. But if, you, if you're taking antihistamines and protein pump inhibitors together, you are more likely to have bacterial complications. Uh, and you're actually more prone to things like Clostridium difficile. And I know you've done a, a lot of research on this and that can lead to a lot of like abdominal pain and diarrhea and, and even worse scenarios in that instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so those two together are like almost like terrible twins, you know, like other medications as well. Can like we actually touch on Dave just briefly? So PPIs, because obviously these are so overused. What's the actual action there? What's it doing? Just so yeah, people know. So, so they cause like a 90, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but it's like a 90, 99% inhibition of, 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 of stomach acid. And as they actually play on a, a particular like set of enzymes. And so those enzymes actually help with the release of acid molecules from the lumen of the stomach lining. So that's what it's playing on. And so the problem here is because most of the time, when people are what they think is displaying signs of like high stomach acid, which most yeah. of the time could be you know, clear signs of low stomach acid. So if they've got yeah. low stomach acid and then you're using the PPIs and you're using it from an inhibition perspective and you're affecting those enzymes that I'm talking about, then well, you've got even lower stomach acid. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you've got even lower stomach acid. And if the stomach acid is really uh, protective, especially from a, uh, a like an antimicrobial perspective and stopping bacteria proliferating in your stomach lining, we're just going to be more prone to this bacteria. And on top of that, you're definitely going to have issues with B12 and you're definitely going to have issues with like amino acids and 20% of the human body is made up of proteins. So of course you're going to have problems with things like hormones and neurotransmitters with yeah. that. So that's a, that's a huge cascade effect. And then if you look at antihistamines um, and antihistamines, because a lot of people think that they, they, they don't essentially block H2 receptors. That's not what they're essentially doing, but they actually play on H1 receptors and they're essentially mimickers. And so they mimic uh, essentially the histamine and they actually help to uh, minimize the, the, I guess, the symptoms or the reaction. But the problem there is that we, we produce a, a, an enzyme within the gastrointestinal tract. It's called DAO. We've, we talk about this all the time, like diamine oxidase. And the role of diamine oxidase is to actually help to break down excess amounts of histamine in the gut. And so this can essentially confuse the body where you cause an inhibition. And so your body doesn't produce as much DAO. So you don't produce as much diamine oxidase. And the problem there is that you're losing your, your, your natural mechanism that actually helps to break down 
excess amounts of histamine within the, the gastrointestinal tract because histamine is produced and broken down in the gut. That's what people need to understand. If you've got histamine issues, I mean, ultimately, where is your problem? Mm. It's in the gut. So if you're taking both of these together and you're affecting things like the diamine oxidase, and, and then we've got more problems with histamine, and then you're also affecting, you know, uh, hydrochloric acid, you're affecting stomach acid, you're affecting things like intrinsic factor. Well, I, I'd say it's going to be like a bit of a domino effect. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you have the answer to this, Dave. It's just when you were talking about it, it made me wonder if someone is taking PPIs or even if someone's taking antihistamines, is there a period of time it takes before when they cease taking these medications for the body to bounce back again? So you're talking about diamine oxidase. Does it take a certain amount of time before the body will upregulate diamine oxidase production again, or we don't have that kind of information? I'm sure we do have the information. Yeah, I'm just like I'm, I'm sure. I just uh, I don't know the exact time frames. Yeah, uh, I'm sure the information is there if you sort of like dig deep. Um, I probably haven't dug deep enough to 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 understand what that sort of what the rebound is. I'm sure there is a rebound. Um, I just it'll be, it'll be interesting to know how long it does. Take. I know with PPIs, it's it's until the cells actually replaced that it's going to be having that effect, and that can be anywhere in the realms of days to to weeks, I believe. But I do wonder how long it takes for that full rebound effect to occur. Yeah, it's, look, it's a great question. Yeah, hmm. we were speaking about this not long ago. We're not saying that there's not a time and a place for certain things. Yeah, um, but it totally depends on the circumstances for the individual. It totally depends on the. The, the issues that they've got going on. And it, sometimes it can just be that, we, you know, it just gets analyzed completely wrong. Do you know what I mean? Because you look at it, like if someone's got hydrochloric acid issues and stomach acid issues, I mean, I know you love symptoms. Well, let's look at it from a symptom yeah. perspective because a lot of the time they they can definitely have like an aversion to animal proteins. Yep. Okay, so they just, they just feel like they don't really want to eat them. And once again, they would say that's intuitive. Yeah. Okay, but obviously if you don't really have the mechanisms to break it down, efficiently of course you're going to be off put by the thought of eating it yeah but that doesn't mean you don't actually need it um and a lot of the time you and we talk about this you get this sort of like gut distinction so we're talking about like bloating but the bloating is right below the chest line yeah okay um and so it's quite high up in the in the gastrointestinal tract so it's what we would call like gut distinction sort of like the pigeon like you'd say like the pigeon chest also like you know people can be quite gassy after they eat and that can also uh, be belching as well hey yeah, like internal belching. That's the yeah. one that we sort of talk about. And, and yeah, some of these symptoms can match up with H. pylori. That's what you say, like H. pylori would be a, would be a factor here, like helicobacter yeah. overgrowth. And it's like elderly people are more prone to hydrochloric acid issues. Okay, yeah. And I think they say something in the realms, this stat might have changed. I think I read this like a long time ago, but they say like uh, 75% of people over 60 have some form of hydrochloric acid issue. Uh, whether that's probably down to even like poor energy systems and more shallow breathing and so forth. And, you know, the negative outcomes, things like uh, carbon dioxide in that instance, because carbon dioxide is just so important for hydrochloric acid. So I can't directly say that is the link, okay? but I'm just, you know, I'm just hypothesizing here. But even like they say, because it affects things like zinc, it could affect things like, uh, like nails, like cracked nails and those types of uh, those types of issues. And you'd find a lot of like undigested food in your stool. And even like a lot of things like fruit fibers and vegetable fibers, which you definitely get with uh, um, H. pylori as well. You probably have pretty bad body odor um, and bad breath. Once yeah. again, you can get those scenarios with H. pylori. And then you get like, like GERD, 
gastric acid reflux, heartburn, these types of things. So, and then when people are getting these types of things, they just go, oh, it's just because there's too much acid. Yeah. But the thing I mean, is, every like, symptom you, you just listed there, or most of those symptoms, that's when people go to the GP, they go to the doctor, they say they, those symptoms, they get told they've got high stomach acid, too much stomach acid. Yeah. And so that's, that, and that's the thing. So they go, well, you've got too much stomach acid. And so they're going to recommend things like antacids. And obviously they, they, they'll, they'll probably recommend things like protein pump inhibitors and so forth. And, you know, the thing is that the, the way to look at it, if, I, if I'm not like hydrochloric acid is, we've already established is so imperative for your ability to break down protein. So you need an acidic environment within the yeah. stomach lining to actually help you to break it down. So if I don't have an acidic environment there and then I'm eating you know, more, more protein. Well, what do you think that's going to be like when I'm trying to break it down? And do you think it's going to cause a lot of discomfort? Do you think you're going to get things like acid reflux? Do you think you're going to get things like heartburn, these types of things? Since you just can't break it down very efficiently. And then we say the answer to that is actually to lower it even more. So I've got two yeah. questions there, Dave. So one is, why, how did that mentality even begin? If it's clearly low stomach acid, and we know this by, by testing you, we know that it's so unlikely people have high stomach acid. Why has that become the dominant narrative where people just get told over and over again that they've got high stomach acid? That's, let's start with that question. How did this even develop? It's a, it's a good question. I don't think you're, I could give you a clear definitive answer. Whether it is just based on that sort of like uh, the symptom sort of aspect. So just saying that there's, there's an acidic sort of response taking place and just saying, well, that must mean there's, there's too much acid there. And it's just that mentality of just saying, well, we just got to lower it. You know, I mean, I, I can't, it's hard for me to speak for why that is still the, the why that is still the formula. Does yeah. that make sense? So to be honest, Jake, I can't give you a definitive answer. Like, I don't know. Like, have it just you... doesn't, well, no, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how it's still the dominant narrative. But I guess my second question then, maybe this informs the first, is why then do antacids and PPIs help? Okay. Cause obviously these do bring symptomatic relief for a lot of people. And I wonder, I guess the second part of my thought there is maybe that's how that started. Maybe because this is the medication that's been used. Maybe there's just been this shift where it's like, Oh, well, antacids are helping. That's lowering stomach acid. And then we just colloquially refer to it as high stomach acid. Maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's where the thought pattern went, but either way, why do these medications help? Well, it's, it's just like what I was talking about with, you know, like antihistamines, like um, the antacids, okay. They, they look, they do help to mitigate the, the symptom that you're experiencing. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm like, I'm not taking away from that. So that symptom that you're experiencing, they just help to mitigate it. But the issue there is it's not. So once again, like with an antihistamine, so it might help to mitigate the symptom, the response, but it's essentially not fixing to why you're producing a lot of histamine, which is probably coming about because of hyperpermeability or things like SIBO. And it's the same thing with antacids. So they might help to mitigate why you're getting that, that, that response. But what they're essentially not addressing is why have you got the actual stomach acid issues and you know the type of damage that you might have within the you know, the epithelium and the, and the gastric pits and all the things that I've already talked about. Once again, I'm not saying that it doesn't help to, to mitigate the, the symptom, okay? But long-term, is it, is it really fixing the major problems that are actually causing these issues? You know, like even like uh, the, the, the reason that people might have ex started to experience some of these issues in the first place, because even like other types of medications, like uh, NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, like anti-inflammatories. I think a good example here is like aspirin. And I'm not saying that, you know, like obviously it's a blood thinner and all these types of things. I mean, there's, they, they, there's you know, there can be some benefits there. I'm not taking away from that. But the whole thing with uh, aspirin, okay, like aspirin 
um, actually can really impede on what, what we call prostaglandins. And they're, they're like a mediator. And so, yes, they're pro-inflammatory, but got, got some anti-inflammatory benefits as well. And that's the, the way they're always looking at it. Like even with like NSAIDs, because the NSAIDs play on the COX-1 enzyme and that actually inhibits the prostaglandin. So then you just don't get the pro-inflammatory response. But the issue there is like prostaglandins are, are really protective for the epithelium and especially the epithelium. So especially for the paratel cells within the stomach lining. So the thing there is if you're affecting the paratel cells within the stomach lining, well, how do you think that's going to go for... Once again, hydrochloric acid, gastric acid, intrinsic factor, it's not gonna, it's not gonna bode well. Okay. So, so then that's creating like a lot of the stomach acid issues and so forth. And then maybe kickstarting a lot of these problems. Okay. And then our solution to that is even more things on top of that. Yeah. Okay. So then you would you could be taking um NSAIDs, aspirin, PPIs, antihistamines. It just like um, and then do painkillers all- affect prostaglandins as well? It's mainly NSAIDs. Look, 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 I'm pretty sure, you know, like Panadol and Paracetamol may have a negative impact on the, on the, on the epithelium as well. But yeah, like NSAIDs and aspirin, I mean, they, they're very detrimental to, mm. to, to, the, to the paratel cells and the epithelium. And they're, they're obviously detrimental to the, to, the, to, to the prostaglandins. Now, are you familiar, I asked before, and I think we sort of went down a different path. Um, so obviously being metabolically expensive to make, is I've heard people throw out numbers that if you're eating less than X amount of calories, your body's going to naturally underproduce stomach acid. Have you heard that before? Is that sort of not something you've come across? So can you repeat that scenario? So I've, I've heard in some realms that if someone's under eating, say about 14 or 1500 calories a day, that they're not going to have the energy availability there to produce stomach acid. Is that something you've come across at all or not? It's not necessarily something that I've come across in like mm-hmm. uh, in literature or, you know, just from my own research. I mean, the big, the big thing for me there is like, like energy systems is a big thing for hydrochloric acid. Yeah. Okay. So it like, and I would say more like, you know, like chronic stress, I actually didn't mention that. It's really detrimental yeah, to the, definitely didn't mention that. Eh? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's really detrimental to the, to the, to the, to the epithelium. So, you know, when you're, when you're chronically stressed and you're a little bit more of a chest breather and essentially, obviously you're, you're not getting enough oxygen. But what people don't realize is what's really important here is by getting more oxygen, then you're going to get more carbon dioxide. And then if you get more carbon dioxide, then you get the bicarbonate and we're going to actually help with the hydrochloric acid. So I would say, you know, people who are like chronically stressed, uh, there's a lot of emotional stress, childhood trauma, all, all, the, all these, you know, financial stress, okay. Mm-hmm. But it's going to make you a lot more, you know, like of a chest breather and even like maybe not um, working particular energy systems because I would say like blood flow is really important here as well. Like, and I know you've spoken about this before. So uh, nitric oxide is really important to actually help with the stomach as well. And obviously, you know, the precursor for nitric oxide, or you could say like, well, obviously, you know, arginine there. But if I've got poor blood flow, that's going to have a negative impact as well. And obviously, if, you know, if you're even more sedentary, okay, so you're not moving enough, that's, that's going to have a big impact. And obviously, if I'm not training things like the oxidation system, which is in layman's terms, like the aerobic system, because ultimately all the energy systems are important. And that can be the problem in the fitness realms is because, 
someone might just focus on one particular energy system. So, and most of the time that tends to be more glycolytic and there's obviously benefits to lactate threshold and producing more lactic acid, but you also need to, to train creatine phosphate. You also need to train uh, oxidation in the long-term system because there's benefits there. And obviously the benefit is with more oxidation and long-term system like steady state is that by getting more oxygen, we're going to get more things like carbon dioxide mm. and that's going to actually help with things like stomach acid so sometimes it could be that you're just also you're, you're neglecting particular energy systems as well and so maybe focusing on a little bit more oxidation you know sometimes a, a sign of that might be you just wake up pretty exhausted like um mm. all the time in the morning mm. okay that could be a, a good sign that you just need a little bit more oxidation and you know something that could be really good for that is like diaphragmatic breathing yeah. you know um, even like a forced hyperventilation like wim hof breathing could be really good in that instance as well. Because obviously if you get more oxygen, you're going to produce more ATP. You produce up to 30 to 32 particles of ATP in that instance. And there's going to be this uh, positive knock-on effect to uh, stomach acid as well. So potentially even someone with like sleep apnea or maybe someone who breathes through the mouth, that could actually start to impact stomach acid as well then, hey. Yeah, yeah, like, like, like for sure. Yeah, mm. and, and sometimes, you know, uh, a lot of the remedies that you can actually put in place, they don't actually have to be that complicated. Do you know mm. what I mean? To, to, mm. to actually help with something like, as I said, it could just be working on your energy system, mm. uh, your energy systems a little bit more. Um, the diaphragmatic breathing, an example like Wim Hof breathing. I'm sure you probably heard of this like uh, mouth tape. Uh, mouth yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So mouth like na- like nasal breathing, and and when you actually listen to people talk about this, they they talk about the benefit with things like carbon dioxide, and so that relates to what we're talking about here. Mm. So let's not go down a H pylori path because we'll talk about that another time. So if we exclude that, what are some things that people can do if they suspect they've got low stomach acid, or maybe they've even been using antacids or PPIs or antihistamines? Have been doing this for a while to control symptoms. Where can they look? What can they do to start to actually address the issues? Well, look, like, look, look at the structure. Yeah. Okay. So that's one. And, you know, we'll keep on repeating this until we're probably blue in the face. Okay. Well, I think we already do this. Okay. Because <laughs> you, you, you've got to look after the epithelium. So you've got to look after that connective tissue. You've got to look after that type one collagen, you know, some good things here. I mean, we talk about this stuff all the time, but you know, uh, goat's colostrum is great for this. It's got proline peptides. It's really good for the epithelium. BPC-157, it's body protection mm-hmm. complex 157. And actually something that's very good for the paratel cells is actually Mariva curcumin. That's a more potent turmeric, but Mariva curcumin actually does help to reduce oxidative stress within the gut lining. And it actually does help to repair GI epithelial tissue. And where it's actually been quite well documented is to actually help with the paratel cells in the gastric pits in the stomach lining. And actually, Mariva curcumin can even help with things like kelprotectin, which has got some, which is a protein molecule, which has got some protective mechanisms as well. So any of these things to actually help with the, with the structure. Zinc alcarnosine. And then also you're covering the base of the soup because you want to make sure that you've got enough of these building blocks to make sure that you're producing enough hydrochloric acid. So yes, look after the, the epithelium, but also... Give the, get the soup, the micronutrients that you require to enable you to produce sufficient amounts of hydrochloric acid. So, so zinc alcarnosine, yes, it actually helps with the, the mucosal barrier, but also the zinc is going to obviously help with hydrochloric acid as well. So it's like a double whammy there. You know, like looking at B1, once again, I'm not going to necessarily say just supplementing with B1 in this instance, sure. but maybe you might look at, a, you know, like a methyl B vitamins, like, a, you know, a B complex, like a good quality methyl B vitamin. 
obviously I'm pretty big on thorn research because they go through the most stringent batch testing. They go through some of the most stringent like testing processes and they're very, very high graded pharmaceutical supplements. So you might look at that and then vitamin E, I'm not saying you necessarily have to take vitamin E, but just to understand if you do have a lot of things like uh, particular omega sixes within your diet, especially a lot of like linoleic acid, which you find finding things like safflower oil and cottonseed oil and these types of ones, which once again, if you eat out a lot, you'd definitely be consuming a lot of that because not going to be using things like butter and coconut oil and avocado oil. So if you're eating more of that and you have more linoleic acid, you actually deplete vitamin E. So sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that you just have to take more of that particular micronutrient. It's, it could be that you just minimize things. So you actually are able to, uh, to uptake the, the particular micronutrient more efficiently. And also, you know, certain types of foods that might be higher in, in vitamin E as well. Like olive oil can, can be a good source of vitamin E. When I, when I was talking about like gamma tocopherol, like pistachio nuts, that can be a bit of an issue on the FOB map, but that doesn't necessarily mean that applies to every single person, but they can be very high in that particular type of vitamin E. And then looking at chloride, and that, that could just be as simple as the quality of the water that you're drinking. What's really, really high in chloride is, is things like naturally sparkling mineral water, mm -hmm. okay? Like a good quality sparkling mineral water, just so high in minerals. And that's what people really forget is that when you're drinking water you just want it to be to have a high concentration of minerals and you know like spring water and also you look at the bicarbonate where you could you could with, with chloride dave what about salt would that increase chloride as well yeah i mean um, you could you could potentially look at that a lot of the time like i recommend like uh sparkling mineral water yeah because you just obviously get a lot of the other key minerals okay sure well even say, say certain types of foods like even like believe it or not lettuce can actually be huh. high in uh, high in chloride but once again it's probably because it's just quite a lot higher in water yeah okay so and then by and, and then yeah bicarbonate what we're going to say there and bicarbonate you could actually look at bicarb soda yep. okay and bicarbonate has the ability to actually act more alkaline or even more acidic according to what is essentially coming in, okay? But it's very good to actually help with the pH balance within the, within the gastrointestinal tract. There's other benefits there, but you can look at like something like quarter of a teaspoon first thing in the morning and like some water, quarter of a teaspoon at night. And so, also- So adding like, the bicarb soda, Dave, would that, that would neutralize a bit of acidity in the stomach acutely, wouldn't it? Correct. So yeah. even though it's actually having an effect where it's, it's more neutralizing acidity, it, it could still be promoting acid production because it's increasing bicarbonate. Interesting. Okay. Correct. And then I've even read some literature where they say that um, alkalizing agents, which like bicarbonate would be classified as that, yeah. can actually help with aromatase and aromatization. Okay. Mm, and so that's yeah. the conversion of testosterone into, into estrogen. So that can actually help with that, those alkalizing agents. So that's another benefit there. Yeah. Um, and also looking at your energy systems. So with that, you know, what I've already talked about, like diaphragmatic breathing, like Wim Hof breathing, minimizing stress. So stress management tools, whether that's mm. like meditation and heart math and, and these types of things. And then there's obviously other things that we can look at that might be a little bit more multifaceted and some of these more multifaceted things that can actually help with that. One that I'm really big on is Swedish bitters. Now, especially because it's sort of like low histamine. And the good thing about Swedish bitters, it's like botanicals. And actually, if you look at it, because it's botanicals, because it's got like plant tannins. And so it can actually have some antimicrobial properties mm -hmm. as well. But what actually uh, Swedish bitters is really good for, it actually helps with the intrinsic factor. And by helping with the intrinsic factor, that's the glycoprotein that I was talking about, then it actually helps with the uptake of B12 in this instance. So it helps with the up 
take of the B12 and the epithelium within the, the small intestine. And then also uh, Swedish bitters, they actually can help with things like bile and bile salts. Mm-hmm. So that means it actually helps with the emulsification of fats, absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. And it's really imperative, especially when we're talking about something like vitamin E. Also, if it's helping with things like bile salts, well, once again, bile salts are antimicrobial within mm-hmm. the small intestine. So if we have that potential to have something like SIBO because it's sort of like that cascade effect down into the small intestine, so Swedish bitters has got some huge benefits here. Um, it could even theoretically so, help with blood sugar as well, couldn't it? Because it normally contains cinnamon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of benefits. Once again, because it's, uh, you, know, you could say, because a lot of Swedish bitters can also have senna. I'm not saying that's yep. imperative, uh, but if you were a little bit more constipated, you know, it's a laxative, so it can actually mm. help from that perspective. And you can get center free as well. Just for people to bear in mind, it can depend. You're a little bit more constipated, you probably want that. If you're a little bit looser, you probably don't want it. And even ginger, you know, ginger can really help with things like serotonin. Serotonin does actually help with gut motility. Mm. Okay. And actually, I think they did some documentation on ginger where it actually helped with things like peptic ulcers. And so the, the, the peptic ulcers, you obviously get within the stomach lining. We know like H. pylori can be a big cause of things like peptic ulcers. So there's some benefits there. They, you know, it's got some antimicrobial properties as well. I mean, I think they use ginger to actually help with things like gum, like bacteria that actually causes gum inflammation. There's other benefits there as well. So that could be something that once again is like, I always, without having all the information there, I always like to look at something that's very multifaceted, covering a lot of different bases. Yeah. Okay. And then- you know, another one like apple cider vinegar. I don't like, do you want to talk a little bit about apple cider vinegar? I mean, it, it can help with like acid, they call it like acid backflow. It, it can definitely obviously help with like hydrochloric acid. Look, I wouldn't say it's, you know, with, for people who do have histamine issues, it's not as high in histamine as like actual vinegar. I want to make that clear, but you might decide to go more for something like a Swedish bitters than an apple cider vinegar. If you do have something like you know, histamine issues, hyperpermeability, SIBO, these types of problems. But if you have blood sugar management issues, like apple cider vinegar is amazing because it actually reduces the insulin load of food by 19 to 34%. That was, you know, one of the major things they actually found with the research with uh, apple cider vinegar. And they actually found mm-hmm. that it actually helps with particular types of bacteria, especially like Escherichia coli, yeah. E. coli. Um, and I so- think it even helps with biofilm as well. Yeah, like I actually didn't know that. I didn't mm. know that was a good biofilm disruptor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and also, like people need to understand that you do apple cider vinegar, you do need to dilute it. Yeah, okay. Yes, important. Uh, okay. It's really important because a lot of the negative, uh, sort of negative information around apple cider vinegar can come about because they're, they're, they're seeing the, the result of like when you're just drinking it and you're not drinking it diluted, yeah. can have a negative uh, impact on things like red blood cells in that instance. So, and teeth. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I look at, I would say it's, you know, it's really important. Like a lot of people, just small things like that, they can, yeah. uh, you know, they can just go, well, it's easier just to get down if I yeah. just drink it straight. Like these things, you, you, know, you know, Swedish bitters, the apple cider vinegar, you need to dilute that. And, you know, probably a good thing to do is you can actually have it with things like uh, sparkling mineral water. Then you get even like more of the minerals with that. You can do that, you can do that with apple cider vinegar. You can do that with uh, Swedish bitters actually. Swedish bitters, when you actually uh, mix it with uh, sparkling mineral water, believe it or not, it tastes exactly like a beer. Okay, <laughs> uh, to be honest, that brings back bad memories for me. But uh, for people who like for people who like beer, you know, you can you can get the same sort of taste. You like the taste of beer just through having Swedish bitters with like sparkling mineral water. That's very funny. I've not tried that. I have to give it a go. Um, I normally add just a bit of lemon juice to apple cider vinegar, and it makes it taste a bit better. 
there's a few good options there. Dave, there was a lot there. That was a big topic. I, I didn't know how we we're going to go getting it all covered. Um, but I think there's plenty there for people to go back and think about and dig a bit deeper in. And, and they can even simply go get their own blood work and just compare those markers we talked about. And if they've got some of those symptoms, if they can see some of those markers out, hopefully it's going to give them the tools to actually begin to fix the underlying issues as opposed to just using a PPI or even just using, like I like to be finished with apple cider vinegar and Swedish bitters because ultimately these are still Band-Aids. You know, they're still they're supportive, but they're still kind of just a Band-Aid. And the stuff you talked about earlier, the soup, as you called it, that's the stuff that's ultimately going to fix it. So 100%. I think we covered covered heaps. I think it's giving people heaps to go along with. So thank you so much for today, Dave. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, guys. I'm sure we'll probably talk more about this uh, particular topic in, in podcasts to come as well because it's a big topic. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in the gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.